Welcome to The Family Room, sponsored by Versprite, where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families, centered on biblical truth and Catholic teaching, because God's kingdom begins at home. Now welcome your hosts, Mari, John, and Craig, here on AM 1160 The Quest, your Atlanta Catholic Radio. Welcome into the family room. As you just heard, I'm Mari. I'm here with my co-hosts, John and Craig. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hello, hello. Hello, hello. 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 There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to get, everybody gets to guess yeah. whose hello is hello. Um, so today we have a returning guest, and this is great. For those of you who follow us and um, listen to our podcast, you can go back and listen to the first time we had John Martinoni on with us. A delightful, um, very intellectual, delightful, great sense of humor um, apologist um, of the Catholic faith. And he was originally with us back on November 17th of 2021. So if you want to look back through on your app or on any of the podcast forums, you'll see um, November 17th, 2020, uh, 2021, we first had him. But he is returning today because John has written another book. And his new book is called A Blue Collar Answer to Prodig- Protestant, I can't even say the word, Protestantism. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Catholic questions Protestants can't answer. Um, So what's very helpful, I think, in John's books is the fact that the way that he sets things up, the way he creates questions and answers and explains the different common sense, but also very theologically, biblically based responses, is that in addition to having answers to questions other people have, we have, he has answers to questions that I as a Catholic may have, because sometimes we haven't learned everything about our Catholic faith, and we just say we believe because we believe, and so it's so helpful to understand why we believe what we believe, how it ties back to Scripture, and how we can um, help other people see the beauty in our Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, what about you guys? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%, and especially as I have children that are trying to figure mm. out their own faith, they get challenged by somebody and can't mm. answer questions, and they want to or whatever, which is helpful. But also what I like uh, with John, and we were having a discussion prior to uh, bringing him on the show, you know, this is not just about debating somebody. Mm-hmm. It really is about evangelization, mm-hmm. yeah. giving the truths and the whys and the what fors, because uh, even we as Catholics have very deep misconceptions a lot of times about what the church has taught or teaches. And I think what John does, and to your point, in a very pragmatic, practical, Mm -hmm. and common sense way has helps us kind of answer those questions in our own minds, thus being able to help other people. Right. Yeah, we're not trying to get into arguments with people at all. I usually am. That's my problem. (laughs) We're trying to... Well, if you're looking for a fight, (laughs) we got your guy. (laughs) We we need to get John on here, but I I think, Mari, to your point, John's arguments, uh, and maybe that's even a bad choice of words, but John's it follows a very simple but but very clear, if this is your premise, then this, then this, then this, yeah. right? So it's yeah. even if you don't have this great philosophical background, you don't need to be Socrates or, or, or some great deep thinker. You just need to be able to follow good, clean thought. And yeah. that's what John does. He lays yeah. it out that way. So let's get John, I guess, eh? Yeah, so before we get John, though, we probably, probably, yeah, let's pray. pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you for the gift of this program, for the gift of this radio station, and for the gift of our special guest today. Father, your son prayed at the Last Supper that, that we would be as one as you and he were one. We just ask that when we study 
apologetics, when we try to understand the deepest and, and most important aspects of our faith, that we might do it in a way that is revealing to us, enlightening to us, that it brings a change in our own hearts, so that as we touch the hearts of others, we might bring about a change in their heart, so that the prayer of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, might truly be answered, that, Father, we would be as one as you and he are one. Father, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 The Father, and the Son, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've listened before, you know John's background, so I'm going to keep it really short so we can really dive into this interesting book. But, you know, I get, when John became an apologist, you know, he became a very popular author. He's a TV and radio host. He's on Catholic Answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he, he's really well known. He, he lives in Birmingham, Alabama with his, uh, I think it's three children and his lovely wife of many years. Um, John, we're really happy to have you back on the show, brother. Uh, Craig, good to be with you guys. I, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I thought I was coming on to talk about Roth IRAs. <laughs> Maybe in your old life as a banker. Oh, yeah. but we're, okay. we're... And actually, actually, it's my four children. I don't want to shortchange anybody. Th thank but you. But no, it's good to be back on the show with you guys. Uh, uh, absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming back. Um, so last time you were on, you did tell us about your faith journey, and our faith journey, as we know, is an ever-evolving, ever, ever um, unfolding journey. Hopefully, it's not stagnant. So we'd love to. We always ask our guests to share with our listeners their faith journey. It's a great way to to witness to each other, to tell the great things about what God has done. So, so is there anything from your background that you want to make sure our listeners who maybe did not hear about you before did not listen back two years ago would like to know at your faith journey but also what's what's god been doing with you the last couple of years since we last talked well uh my faith journey is pretty simple born and raised catholic uh, baptized as a baby first communion first confession in second grade i was confirmed in fourth grade at age 10 and basically after that uh never really learned my faith growing up. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people when I walked onto the campus at the University of Alabama, I walked right out of the church. Mm -hmm. And I was out of the church for 13 years, lived a, living a uh, world-class heathen lifestyle, um, <laughs> got into the, you know, got a finance degree, MBA, started working in the defense industry and, and banking and, and uh, ended up going back to school to work on a PhD in finance at the University of North Carolina. And I only did one year. I didn't really like the Ph.D. program there. And But during that year, I was reading through a series of coincidences, came upon some books and was started reading spiritual reading and reading about the faith. And as I left the campus at the University of North Carolina, I came back into the church. Mm -hmm. um, was working in finance for several years after that and then got into the nonprofit world as a business manager with a Salesian ministry to the poor. And through another coincidence, just happened to hear a really anti-Catholic program on evangelical radio one day, called to complain. One thing led to another, and I wound up having a Catholic live, once-a-week, call-in Catholic apologetics program on the largest evangelical radio station in the state of Alabama. <laughs> Nothing goes wasted. <laughs> God and is good. Just, from there, things went nuts. Uh, people, you know, I started giving talks. People started saying, can you come to my parish, give talks? Can you come to my Knights of Columbus Council, come to this group, that group? 
and some of the talks got recorded. EWTN aired them, and all of a sudden I start getting calls from all over the country. You know, can you can we get a copy of that talk? So a a quote unquote tape ministry was born, and I'm sending out literally tens of thousands of tapes a year. And at the time, early 2000s, late 90s, it was cassette tapes. Yeah. And then yeah. that quickly went over into CDs, and now it's MP3 downloads and such. But uh, um, then people, I'd send out tapes, and then a few months later, I'd get a call, hey, can you come talk to at our parish? Sure, where are you? Well, we're in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. We're in Reno, Nevada. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? <laughs> so it just exploded. And um, 2009, I was, I was so I, I ended up being involved with bringing Catholic radio to Birmingham. I ran the radio station for a while. Uh, it went away. I formed another corporation, a nonprofit. We brought Catholic radio back. Um, I was doing the Bible Christian Society full time, doing talks all over the country. And in 2009, the bishop here in Birmingham called, said, "John, I want you to be the director of evangelization for the diocese." So that's what I've been doing since then, although I'm still doing the Bible Christian Society. Um, and it's, so it's, it's basically been the same the last two years, uh, although I'm getting into some other projects I'm starting to talk to people about because uh, no one's really talking about the fact that the 2,000-year anniversary of the church is coming up mm-hmm. in 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. 2033, and nobody's talking about it. The Vatican, the USCCB, nobody. So I'm like, hey, folks, we got to get on a, on the horse here because this. I, I believe the 2,000-year anniversary of the church could be one of the great evangelization moments for the Catholic Church, and so we need to be prepared for it and start start getting getting things in place to take advantage of this opportunity. I love that. That is that great. Is very cool. I never even give, I never gave it ten seconds of thought. So I guess I'm right there with everybody else. I know. know. We're we're writing it down on our notepads and yeah. putting big stars. Like, why didn't we think about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, John, the whole Protestant thing. A lot of people will um, say it's, it was Martin Luther. It was Martin Luther's fault. The truth is, Martin Luther was responding to some very legitimate concerns, and then, as frequently happens, things got out of hand. Can you? We only have an hour, but can you can you give us, I don't know, maybe a 10,000-foot look at Martin Luther and Protestant and how we got to the point that we are where, um, that, where we are a church divided? Well, uh, it's, it's like you said, everything I've read about Martin Luther is, you know, he was an Augustinian monk. Mm-hmm. So he's a Catholic monk in Germany, and there are some issues in the Catholic Church, just like there are today in the mm-hmm. Catholic Church, and there have been every year of the almost 2,000 years of the Catholic Church. There's always issues in the Catholic Church. Why? Because guess what? It's run by human beings, Mm -hmm. and human beings are sinful, and they have their faults and such. So there's always problems in the Catholic Church because humans are in, in the Catholic Church. So there are problems in the Church. Martin Luther protests against legitimate issues that he's got legitimate beefs with, and what happened was that, uh, you know, the economics, the po- politics, the religious stuff going on all came. I mean, it was a perfect storm in Germany and the, and the barons and the nobles and such in Germany. They take advantage of this monk, what he's doing, and they go and they break from the church. 
and, and they seized church lands. And Martin Luther, you know, at first he said, I'll, I'll do whatever the pope says, and then he backs out from that. And, and uh, you know, he had, from what I've read, he had issues with, with scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he would have had this thing where he, he'd sin and he'd confess it, but he's like, I haven't been forgiven. And he'd confess it again and again, and I haven't been forgiven. So that's how he slowly came up with this salvation by faith alone dogma hmm. because that made it to where well it doesn't matter if i sin you know i'm saved by faith and faith alone so there's nothing i can do other than having faith to to gain salvation so there's nothing i can do to lose my salvation hmm. and so that made him feel better and it, it's quite often our personal uh situation our, our personality, our temperament, uh, what we, our likes, dislikes, they tend to drive our theological beliefs as, allowing, as opposed to allowing theological truth to, you know, impose itself upon us and let us conform to it. We conform our theological beliefs to our personal taste and mores and, and habits and such. Um, so he got in... I think you're right. I think he got in way over his head. I don't think he meant to start a new religion mm-hmm. uh, to break from the Catholic Church. But one thing led to another, and he kind of got swept up in the mm-hmm. in the waves. Uh, like I said, economic, political, theological, etc. And lo and behold, we end up with a, a, a new denomination, a, a break in Christianity, and then. Early on, I mean, almost immediately, we have other breaks from mm-hmm. Martin Luther. You know, Zwingli breaks off. Zwingli and Luther have issues about the Eucharist. Calvin breaks off. There's issues between, you know, the, all the reformers, so-called. They had issues with each other. So immediately you get these break after break within Protestantism. And it's, it's, I've, I've read where by the end of this you know the 15th the 16th century by 1600 you had like 200 protestant denominations then by 1900 you had it's estimated a thousand or so and now we've got tens of thousands upon tens of thousands mm-hmm. of denominations but luther was the spark but again i don't think he meant to do what happened but it just turned out that that's the way it was yeah got it I mean, what i like about that you're really calling out the tales of something in our church, which, you know, our own personal beliefs based on our internal brokenness. Um, Ignatius had the same problem early on of scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. And he finally had to get over that. And by, you know, determining God's voice versus you know, what he thought was Satan's voice, he was able to get over it. And then how many great reformers have we had in the church that recognized the problem, stood up and said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to sit here and fight that battle within the church. And I mean, really what you're doing is that evangelization of doing the same thing, right? I mean, let's have the discussion of why you should be back in this church and not one of the 38,000 or whatever the number is of other churches. And how do you reconcile all that stuff? So I appreciate your your view on that and that leads me to my question i guess <clears throat> maybe i've answered it but i'd really like to know why'd you write another book because you had blue collar apologetics you've got another book that's written differently because the way you set up the two parts of it and really what do you think you were hoping to accomplish by this next book 
Well, with the current book, A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, well, the first book, Blue Collar Apologetics, How to Explain and Defend Catholic Teaching Using Common Sense, Simple Logic, and the Bible. What that does is it lays out uh, how to engage in evangelization, how to engage in apologetics. And what apologetics basically boils down to is a reasoned and rational explanation and defense of the faith. Okay, so I tell people this is how you do it, and I give them four main strategies in the first book how to do that. And each strategy I show with each chapter of the book is either on a Protestant doctrine or dogma or Catholic doctrine or dogma. You know, the, the rapture, once saved, always saved, the Eucharist, baptism, etc. And I show them how to use those strategies, again, based mostly on common sense and simple logic to engage in conversations that Catholics are normally avoiding because they don't know how to do this stuff. With this book, it's, it's kind of a, it's a follow-up on that because it's a blue-collar answer. And for me, the, the term blue-collar, you could substitute common sense, mm-hmm. you know, because for me, blue-collar workers, plumbers, electricians, factory workers, these people have common sense. Mm-hmm. If they don't have common sense, they can't do their jobs, mm-hmm. all right? So... A blue-collar answer to Protestantism basically is, as you said, it's divided in two parts. The first part is problems with Protestantism. And what I do is I look at Protestantism from a macro point of view, or uh, maybe looking at the tree, at, at the forest instead of the trees. Okay. All right? And I look at, uh, try to get to underlying assumptions that Protestantism is built on, and show that, well, these assumptions really don't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the pillars of Protestantism are built on sand. These things don't make common sense. They don't make biblical sense. And just show in, in, in an easy way, you know, a common sense way, that, hey, anybody can ask these questions and, and, and you know, point out these issues to Protestants, Again, not to win an argument or anything, but to plant seeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Second half of the book is called Questions Protestants Can't Answer, and it's 30 questions that I have personally used in my thousands of discussions with Protestants over the last 25 years. And these questions are such, I mean, they're built, most of them are from the Bible or based on the Bible. A lot of them just plain old common sense. And I say they these are questions Protestants can't answer, not, not that they won't give you an answer, but the answer they give you will either A, contradict Scripture, or B, contradict their own theology. Mm. So they, they can't answer these questions in a, a, a comprehensive and straightforward manner without belying one or the other, either Scripture or their theology. And just as a, an example, one of the questions is, to people who believe in salvation by faith alone, sola fide, which is not all Protestants, but a great number of Protestants, you ask the question, do you have to love God in order to be saved? Well, if, if you know, I, I, I can guarantee all three of you said, well, in your heads, well, of course you have to love God in order to be saved. You know, I mean, love God with all your mind, heart, strength, and soul greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, and if you don't love your neighbor, you're not loving God. And if you don't love God, you're not abiding in God. And all that. So, of course, you have to love God to be saved. But if you believe in salvation by faith 
alone, the answer should be no. You don't have to love God in order to be saved because you're saved by your faith and your faith alone. That's the definition of the dogma. Mm. So if they say, yes, you have to love God in order to be saved, well, then sola fide is not true. It's faith and love that save you. Mm -hmm. But if you say, no, you don't have to love God in order to be saved, well, now you've contradicted Scripture. Mm -hmm. Because all through Scripture, especially the New Testament, you have to love God. And if you don't love God, you're not abiding in God. If you don't abide in God, you're not saved. So that's, that's how easy it is to get someone to start thinking about what it is they believe and why they believe it, and maybe planting a seed of the truths of the Catholic faith that will, you know, let the Holy Spirit take it from there and let hopefully good fruit will come of that. Yeah. That was very helpful. Um, so if you're just joining us, we are here in the family room with John Martinoni, and um, he's talking about his new book, A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, Catholic Questions That Protestants Can't Answer. And you just started talking about sola fide. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of Catholics who don't know some of those pillars of the Protestant church, sola fide, sola scriptura, what that means, and why, Why, as you just said a few minutes ago, they don't really hold up in, in a lot of ways. And I, I also love the fact that you said, we're not arguing, we're just saying, hey, think of it, you know, let's think about why you believe what you believe. Just like as Catholics, we need to understand why we believe what, what we believe, asking our Protestant brothers and sisters, do you understand why you believe what you believe, and does it hold you know, does it hold up? Does it hold up, like you said, to logic and to scripture and that type of thing? Would you break that? Oh, so you've already talked about sol- sola fide. Would you break open that theology of sola scriptura for folks as well? Sure, Mari. Um, sola scriptura is the belief that the the Bible is the sole rule of faith for the Christian, um, and it's the sole infallible rule of faith. The Protestant will say for the Christian. It, and what I've heard over and over and over again from Protestants. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it's not in the Bible, I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that's the line of demarcation, the Bible. Bible and Bible alone. Well, I ask a question. I say, all right, everything, you know, I was even in a debate with a Church of Christ preacher on several different topics over several years in several different cities, and one of them was Sola Scriptura. And the proposition for the debate was everything about the Christian faith can be answered from the Bible. And he was affirming I was negating. So I asked him a question, beginning of the debate. I said, the Gospel of Mark, I said, you believe that's, that's inspired, inerrant word of God, right? He says, absolutely. I said, can you tell me where in the Bible it says the Gospel of Mark is the inspired, inerrant word of God? And when he got up there, he didn't tell me. You know? And so I came up the second time. I said, I win the debate. He can't answer my question from the Bible. And he comes up, he says, it doesn't matter if we, you know, we know this, uh, you know, he made it, didn't answer it. So I had a deacon come up to me, a deacon of the Church of Christ come up to me afterwards and said, our boy didn't answer your questions, did he? I said, no, sir, he didn't. You know, and it's an easy question. Where in the Bible, you believe the Gospel of Mark is the inspired and errant word of God. The Bible is your sole source for all Christian doctrine and dogma. So where does the Bible tell you that the Gospel of Mark or, or the letter to the Hebrews or the letter to James is the inspired and errant word of God? And he couldn't tell me. So what that tells you is there's some source outside of the Bible 
from which you get your information about the Bible. Mm -hmm. So there is an authority outside of the Bible that you have to rely on in order to have the Bible in the first place. And this authority is telling you, yes, the Gospel of Mark is the inspired and errant word of God, as is the letter to the Hebrews and, and the letter of James and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation, etc., etc., etc. So to say that sola scriptura, you know, basically what that shows is that sola scriptura, the Bible alone, is a logical contradiction because you can't have the Bible unless you've got an authority outside of the Bible telling you what the Bible is. Mm, mm-hmm. So sola scriptura is logically indefensible. Now, it's, it's scripturally indefensible as well. I can, you know, we could get into that, but the whole book is about common sense. You ask that one question, where in the Bible does it say somebody named Mark wrote the Bible and that this Mark was inspired by the Holy Spirit and that the Gospel of Mark is therefore the inspired and errant Word of God. Where does the Bible tell you that? Nowhere. Mm-hmm. So sola scriptura is uh, logically kaput as, as, a, as a dogma. So it's interesting as you're talking, what I'm seeing in my mind is that what you're doing is you're helping people see, okay, there's some holes here. And if they're holes, I need to search to find out how to fill these holes. And that's where you right. said, you know, hope we pray that you're planting seeds and that the Holy Spirit then comes and and draws them into the fullness of the Catholic faith that has answers to a lot of places where those holes are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, and the fact of the matter is, is the authority outside of the Bible that they're relying on in order to have the Bible. Guess who that is? Yeah the Catholic Church. Yeah. You know, the, the Church of Christ preacher said, well, we rely upon the, the witness of the early Christians. I said, okay, which ones? Name me some of those early Christians you rely upon for your witness about the Bible. Couldn't do it. Why? Because they were all Catholic. Yeah. It was Catholic bishops, at, at Catholic, uh, uh, you know, councils of the Church that came up with the Bible as we have it today, you know, and so in deciding which books should be and should not be considered the inerrant, inspired Word of God. So, John, we're going we're gonna to be real close to a uh, break here at the half, but you've laid out some really important things because despite the frustration and the inherent conflict almost between what our Protestant brothers and sisters believe and what we hold to be true, your call is for us to go out and evangelize our Protestant brothers and sisters, not debate them, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you cast a very good vision. Maybe when we come back, we'll talk about some points that you make and and to help us do that evangelization versus just a pure out-and-out debate. Sounds good. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a few minutes here in the Family Room with John Martinoni. We'll be right back in the Family Room, sponsored by Versprite, right after this. In today's world, cybersecurity is critical for your business. Award-winning Versprite provides solutions to protect your company from hackers. For protection now, see Versprite.com. That's V-E-R-Sprite.com. The Quest thanks Versprite for their support. The Quest presents Pro-Life Minutes. Did you know that if you were born after 1973, one-fourth of your generation is missing? Perhaps that's why so many people longing for their soulmates have not been able to find them. They may have been aborted. Have you wondered who will find the cure for Alzheimer's, cancer, or diabetes? God may have already sent someone to discover those cures, but someone's choice ended their life before it began. 
Society tells us that we are alive because of our mother's choice. The world says that your worth comes from your convenience to others. But the maker of this world tells us otherwise. You are created in the image and likeness of God, full of dignity, and no one can take that away from you. So be not afraid. Let's show the world that every life matters by speaking up for life at every opportunity. For more homegrown wisdom, visit thequestatlanta.com. I'm Father Tony Blunt from the Society of Our Lady of the Most Holy Trinity. This is one of my favorite prayers, the act of faith. Oh my God, I firmly believe that you are one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe your divine Son became man and died for our sins, that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe these and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church teaches because you have revealed them through our eternal truth and wisdom who can neither deceive nor be deceived. In this faith, I intend to live and die. This is Dr. David Anders, host of Call to Communion. You know, Catholic Radio made a huge difference in my journey to the Catholic Church. I had pretty much read everything I could read and answered all the questions for myself I could answer, but I needed some real life breathing Catholics to talk to, you know, and I stumbled across Catholic Radio in my car and found people who'd walked the journey before me. I started calling them up and asking them questions, and they were there for me when I needed them, and they kind of helped me across some of those last hurdles between me and full inclusion in the Catholic Church. There are cities that have very few Catholics. There are some that have all kinds of Catholics. And yet, still, the guy next door to you, you can't assume he knows anybody who's Catholic. Catholic Radio, for a lot of people, is literally the only Catholics they know. I believe your support of your Catholic radio station can make an eternal difference in the life of an individual, a family, and in society. So support Catholic Radio. To donate, log on to thequestatlanta.com. Hello, this is Father Joe Wagner, a priest of the Archdiocese of Atlanta. Thank you for listening to your Atlanta Catholic Radio AM 1160 The Quest. God bless you. Welcome back to The Family Room with Mari, John, and Craig, sponsored by Verse Sprite on AM 1160 The Quest. John Martinoni, we're talking about his book, A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, Catholic Questions Protestants Can't Answer. Thanks for being with us, John. Uh, what, you know one of the traditions uh, of the family room is, is when we come back from our break is to ask our guests a favorite family room memory. So from their family room growing up or from the current family that they have. And you got to share one with us last time, but, but you get to do two on the family room. Uh, so what, what is your favorite family room memory or one that you'd like to share this time? Well, I always, um, for me, Christmas Eve mm. growing up, because... Uh, in I'm half Italian on my father's side, but uh, half Polish on my mother's side. And in, in the Polish tradition, Christmas Eve is when you have the big meal, you know, the big family get together as opposed to Christmas Day. And so we would have our big meal on Christmas Eve. And then after the meal is when we would get to open up the presents from all of the family. Right. And then... So, uh, uh, Christmas morning, you wake up and you've got the presents from Santa Claus, okay? So, yeah, the Christmas Eve dinner and opening up the presents with all the family there, mom and dad, brothers and sisters, and everybody just ripping up those gifts and getting, you know, all the the toys or whatnot, and, and then waking up, ha- having the anticipation 
for, okay, I'm going to sleep tonight, but uh, in trying to stay up, but you always fall asleep, you know, when you're four, five, six years old, and then waking up, either you wake up first or one of your brothers or sisters, Santa's come, Santa's come, you know, and going rushing out and getting the presents, and uh, that, that's, that ranks up there with, with all-time favorite Family memories. I agree. I think that's good. So let's go back, John. Right before the break, we were talking about um, the fact that it's it can be it's frustrating at times, and it's very um, it can be confrontational at times. The fact that there's pretty serious breaks between good sound uh, theological thinking and what our brothers and sisters who are Protestant believe, and it would be very easy to get sucked into a debate. But you're not asking us to debate. You're asking us to evangelize our Protestant brothers and sisters. And you make three points why you think it's more important to, to be engaging with our Protestant brothers and sisters than to say a non-Christian denomination or an agnostic or, or an atheist or, or something like that. Can you dig in on that a little bit for us? Well, n- number one, for, for me, one of the points is just practical because um, I, I run into – other than Catholics, just about the only people I talk to are are Protestants, non-Catholic Christians. Mm-hmm. I I've never had uh, uh, up until a couple of weeks ago I'd never had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. Mm. Okay, never had Mormons come to my door. I've talked with atheists online some, but never well a few times in person outside of the abortion mill. You know, when we we'd go out there on Saturday morning to pray the rosary, there'd be atheists who were staunch defenders of abortion. And uh, I'd get into it some with them. But for the most part, it's non-Catholic Christians, Protestants in general. And so from a practical standpoint, Protestants are the ones that Catholics quite often have religious discussions with. Number two is, you know, you're talking, I think in the prayer at the beginning of the show, you're talking about Jesus' prayer at the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Lord, let us be one. Yeah. Jesus has prayed that his followers, so he's talking about Christians there, mm-hmm. be one as he and the Father are one. So I always ask people, I say, well, I always ask Catholics who tell me, well, you shouldn't evangelize Protestants. You know, they, they believe in God. They've got Jesus. They, they've got the Bible, etc." I said, no, no, no. I said, Jesus prayed that we, his followers, be one as Father and Son are one. I said, so do God the Father and God the Son disagree on infant baptism, for example? No, they don't. Do they disagree on once saved, always saved, or, or, or on, on uh, you know, is, is salvation a one-time event, or is it a process? No, they don't disagree. Do they disagree on the Bible alone or Bible and tradition? No, they don't disagree. So why, as Christians, are we allowing these disagreements to exist? If Jesus prayed we be one as he and the Father one, then we should be having discussions with our brothers and sisters in the Protestant churches about what is the truth. Not Catholics are right, Protestants are wrong, but what is the truth, and are you willing to follow the truth wherever it leads? That's, that's the attitude every Christian should have, Catholic, non-Catholic, etc. So Jesus' prayer is is another point for you know his prayer for unity so we have to follow it number three is we as christians cannot be as effective a voice in society Mm -hmm. when we're split into thousands tens of thousands upon tens of thousands 
of denominations. We don't speak with one voice, which is why society, culture, is crumbling around us. Literally, our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. And we as Christians cannot speak to it with one authoritative voice. And as such, our our, uh, impact is much, much less than it otherwise would be if we were speaking with one voice. And, and finally, I, I'll make a fourth point here, is that Jesus started a church, and through that church he gives us himself body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. So I'll ask a Catholic who says, well, you don't need to evangelize the evangelicals or the Baptists or the, or the Lutherans. I say, well, who is it you think Jesus doesn't want in his church? Who is it you think Jesus does not want receiving him in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity? You don't think Jesus wants Baptists receiving him in the Eucharist? I go, well, uh, well, yes, he does. He died on the cross for them. He died on the cross so they could receive him in the Eucharist. And you're saying we don't have to bring them to the Eucharist. What's wrong with that? And that usually gets people thinking that, oh, well, maybe I've been thinking about this all wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say, you know, I'm not saying you, you only evangelize Protestants, but that's why it's so important to evangelize Protestants first and foremost, so that we can be one as Christians. So um, I'm going to flip this on its head just slightly, John, because you're obviously very well-versed. You're a very smart man. You're very articulate despite the fact that you and I get in debates constantly about everything. Uh, but are you saved, John? Are, are you Am really I saved? saved? Well, yes, I have been saved. Yes, I just went to confession, uh, what, a week ago? So, uh, uh, And I don't believe I've committed a mortal sin since then. So I am being saved. And if I persevere to the end, I will be saved. So, yes, is the answer to your question. And all Catholics can answer that same way, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> that, um, is the, one of the reasons we asked that question is when I went to college, I grew, up on a, I grew up on a Catholic island. I grew up on Guam, 98% Catholic. So I, I was Catholic in culture and just faith and didn't know why I was Catholic. And I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, it was the first time I'd been in the United States. And uh, almost within a, the first week or so, I had people asking me if I was saved. And I didn't know how to answer that question. I said, well, yeah, I'm saved. And and then they said, well, how do you know you're saved? You know, so I, what I realized pretty quickly was I didn't understand my, I didn't know my faith. I didn't know why I believed what I believed. But, but you know, helping people say as Catholics, if somebody does come, because it's kind of one of the first questions that you're asked by a non-Catholic Christian is, are you saved? That we, yes. yes, I have been saved, I am saved, and I am being saved. Would you break that open for us a little bit more for people to understand why we, why we answer that way? Well, we have been saved through baptism, yeah. okay? When you are baptized, Scripture very clearly shows the, the effects of baptism in, in the New Testament, and, and in the, it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, baptism, what does it do? Well, forgiveness of sins through baptism, reception of the Holy Spirit through baptism, became, becoming a member of the body of Christ through baptism. And then uh, 1 Peter 3, 20, uh, 2021 says, uh, 
comparing baptism to Noah and his family. What does it say? It says they were saved through water. Okay, and then it says the very next verse, baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? Being saved through water now saves you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a direct quote from the baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So if you've been baptized, you have been saved. Then, you know, if you're baptized as a child, then when you reach the age of reason or able to start committing sin, it's only a mortal sin that disconnects you from the body of Christ. And so if you've committed a mortal sin, but you've gone to confession, you've repented, you've been absolved of the sin, then you're still in the process of being saved. Because the thing, the difference between Catholic belief in salvation as a process versus many Protestants believing salvation is a one-time event, mm-hmm. yeah. Catholics believe sin has consequences. Yeah. If you believe salvation is a one-time event, you don't believe sin has consequences because you're saved. Well, but you've committed these sins, you know, you're stealing, you're lying, you're cheating, you know, committing murder, whatever. Well, it doesn't matter. I've been saved. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Catholics say, no, no, those sins, as scripture says, separate you from Christ. Mm-hmm. And so if you've been, if you committing those sins, which as sinners, that's what we do. We commit sins, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully less and less as we get holier and holier. But, uh, you know, you commit those sins. Well, Jesus gave us a process by which we can have those sins forgiven and, and receive the grace to hopefully not commit those sins anymore. And that's confession, the sacrament of confession. And so we were saved through baptism. We are being saved as we go through life and hopefully become holier and, and, and receive grace through the sacrament of confession and through the Eucharist and so forth. And if we persevere to the end, as Paul says, if I finish the race, I will be saved. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved if I persevere. Great. Thank you. Well, folks, um, you're in the family room with John, Craig, and Murray, and John Martinoni talking about his book, once again, on apologetics, but really evangelization, a blue-collar answer to Protestantism. Thank you, John. (laughs) Catholic questions Protestants can't answer. Um, I love that answer because I know when I was taught early on, it was, well, we're redeemed. We we wouldn't use the term saved, Mm. and we would refer to Scripture that's where, where Paul says, I am working out my salvation in fear and trembling. Right. Mm-hmm. So for me, I like your answer much better. That's why you're on the show, because you're much <laughs> smarter than I am. But I want to debate you on something, though. As a, as a baby, you can't be baptized. I mean, don't you have to have full reason and, and be there, you know, making that decision yourself? Well, we have scriptural precedent for what? the answer to that as being no, you don't. You know, in Genesis, what is it, Genesis 17, I think? Yes, 17, about, uh, you know, God institutes a covenant with Israel. What is the covenant? Circumcision. When do you have to be circumcised? Eight Eight days days old. Mm -hmm. At eight days old, you enter into covenant with God. Now, is that eight-day-old baby able to make a conscious decision of faith? 
You know, no, absolutely not. Is that eight-day-old baby able to do any good works? Absolutely not. So, but he enters into covenant with God through the act of circumcision. And we see in Colossians where circumcision or or where baptism is shown to be the new covenant uh, equivalent or, or, you know, I'll say equivalent for the moment of circumcision, but it's actually taken circumcision to the next level. But through baptism in the New Testament era is how we enter into covenant with God. Well, if you enter into covenant with God as eight-day-old baby in the Old Testament, why do you all of a sudden have to be an adult or, or at the age of reason to enter into covenant with God in the New Testament? Can't, can't God do this work through you? And that's I tell people, because so often Catholics are accused of having a works salvation. You believe you can work your way into heaven. I, sh- I said, no, no, infant baptism. Mm-hmm. We believe the baby's saved. The baby has no faith. The baby has no works, nothing. The baby is saved wholly and entirely by the grace of God, yeah. period. And that's how everybody is saved, is by the grace of God. However, God expects that once you've been saved, once he's given you this incredible gift, you need to do something with it, mm-hmm. or else he will take his gift back. And, and the the uh, story from the Bible that I use, Matthew 25, the, um, the parable of the talents. Mm-hmm. God gave five talents to one, two to another, and one to a third. And when, he, when the, the Lord of the estate returns, the one with five has, done t- has made it into ten. He did something with what his Lord gave him. And the Lord says, enter into your master's joy. The one with two turned, him into, turned it into four. Enter into your master's joy. The one with one gave the Lord back what he had been given. What did the Lord say? You worthless and lazy servant. Mm -hmm. Take what he's got away from him and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. That third servant was a sola fide servant. Okay? He took what his Lord gave him and did nothing with it, and he got tossed out. Okay? So God gives us a free gift, but, you know, hey, if any of you ever got a present for Christmas— and you left it sitting under the tree for a year or two, what's going to happen? Somebody's <laughs> going to take that gift from you, yep. okay? It's going to be gone, you know, or the person who gave it to you is going to take it back because obviously Craig didn't like my gift, so I'm taking it back. You know, he's not using it, and that's the same with God. He gives us a great gift. He expects us to do something with it, and if we don't, he's going to take it away from us. Beautiful common sense. Yep, yep. Let's go back to the book then, John. Um, you broke the book up, uh, into two different parts for a reason. Give us a little bit of insight into why you did it that way and why you think that will be helpful as we engage in this evangelization challenge you're offering. Yeah, and I'm glad you got back to that because I started on this er- earlier with one, one of you had asked a question. Basically, the first half of the book, Problems with Protestantism, is looking at Protestantism from a macro view, or, or as I, the analogy I use is looking at the forest instead of the trees. The second half of the book, Questions Protestants Can't Answer, is looking at the trees instead of the forest. Mm. So it's looking at individual doctrines and dogmas, uh, whereas the first half is looking at Protestantism basically as a whole and shows the, the inconsistencies there. The, individual, the second half, 
focuses mostly on what I call the pillars of Protestantism, sola scriptura, sola fide, but it also gets into some, uh, you know, the once saved, always saved, and, and, and a couple others. But, uh, and it comes out, and the reason there's 30 questions is because I want to show that this is not just some, oh, John took one verse of scripture from one obscure chapter in one, you know, one book and turned it into, oh, Protestantism is wrong. No, I'm showing you with 30 questions from various, based upon various and sundry scripture verses and passages from many different books of scripture that these dogmas, these doctrines of Protestantism do not make sense. They don't make common sense. They don't make logical sense. They don't make scriptural sense. And I'm showing it from many, many different angles. And that's, that's why I broke the book up into those two halves. So how that makes sense in, in my mind, John, is I think about mathematics, studying mathematics. In particular, I think about you and geometry, because you lay things out the way you did a proof in geometry, right? So really, the first part of your book was, here's the principles, here's the, you know, the hierarchy of, of orders, and here's all the things about mathematics that are principle and pillar. And now I'm going to give you that next section, which I always hated, which was the actual application <laughs> of the problems. Some of them were word problems, some of them were... Just, is that a fair assessment of what you're trying yeah, to do? I, I'd say it is, you know, because uh, like the very first chapter in my book, under problems with Protestantism is decapitating Jesus. And you're like, what? What, <laughs> what are you talking about? Decapitating <laughs> Jesus? And it's like, well, yeah, I have been told over and over and over again by Protestants across the spectrum that, hey, you go by what your church teaches. I go by what the Bible says, or I go by what Jesus says. You go by what your church says. They, they, and they'll tell me, I don't need a church. I've got the Bible. They separate the church from the Bible, or they separate the church from the Word of God. But what does the Word of God call the church? The body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So what are they doing? They're separating the head, Jesus, from the body, the church. What's it called when you separate the head from the body? Decapitation. So many of these people are decapitating Jesus. And there you have flawless John Martinoni, easy Logic. to follow. Logic. Logic. But what's your question? What's your next question? <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. That's, well, no, 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 that's yeah. all right. Uh, my wife does that all the time. So. <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, you know, but so that shows the overall overarching issue is that, well, the church isn't that important in Protestantism. It's the Bible and, and, you know, me and Jesus and all. And it shows well, logically that just doesn't make sense. Scripturally, that doesn't make sense. And then you can go back to the questions and say, you know, get into the individual questions, which since the Protestants don't have a church they're relying on, they can't answer these questions. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the you just mentioned a few minutes ago that in those 30 questions, you, what you did is you showed different places in Scripture. And one of the ones that fascinated me was when you talked about the story of the prodigal son. And it went back to what you were just talking about, like, can we lose our salvation, right? Right. And would you just give a quick high level of that, that um, Scripture story and why it links to that? Well, the prodigal son in Luke, you know, it's uh, in um, the question I asked, the question that Protestants can answer is, 
was, and this is once saved, always saved right. Protestants. Can't answer this. Again, all of these questions do not apply to all Protestants right. all the time. Right. right. Many different beliefs among Protestantism. But for those who believe in once saved, always saved, the question is, was the prodigal son saved when he was in his father's house at the beginning of the parable? And, well, the father in this story, everybody agrees is analogous to God the Father. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if you're in your father's house, can an unbeliever be in God the Father's house? No. No. Not at all. So I get the answer most of the time. Yes, he was saved when he was in his father's house. But then it says he goes off, he gets his inheritance, which for Christians our inheritance is salvation. Gets his inheritance, goes off and loses his inheritance. How? By sinning. Mm -hmm. Then he comes to his senses. I've sinned against God, my father, and and I repent. I'm coming back to the father. And here's the thing. When the son comes back and the father sees him, what does the father say? Does he say, oh, this is my son who was alive and is still alive? Uh Uh-uh. He says, well, this is my son who was dead and is alive again. Well, in salvation terms, being alive is being saved. Being dead is being unsaved. So if the son was saved when he was in his father's house, he was alive in his father's house, then he went off and sinned, and he died mm-hmm. through sin. Then he comes back, he repents, and he's alive again. So saved, unsaved, saved again. So once saved, always saved. It's not happening in the parable of the prodigal son. Yeah, fascinating. No, it is fascinating, and uh I'm going to ask you one quick question. Um, we need other resources where people can go to get your material, but also confirmation from you that you've had these conversations with people and people have actually been converted over time because of that. Yes or no? Yes. Perfect. Yes. I've, I've had conversations and, and, and personally a few, but I've heard from a number of people who have taken my materials and used it with their friends, their families, etc., co-workers who are hitting them up at work about the Catholic faith, and they've come back to me and said, hey, I brought my, fa- my, my brother and his whole family back into the church. Quickly, resources? Resources. BibleChristianSociety.com. You can get a lot of free talks, get, get my newsletter, apologetics newsletter. To get the book, the first or second blue-collar book, Go to EWTNRC.com or SophiaInstitute.com, which is Sophia Press's website. So either one of those, you can get either one or both books. We loved having you. Would you say a very short, quick prayer for our listeners as we finish out today? Sure. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we ask your blessings upon all that we do, upon us, upon our families and friends, upon the families and friends of all those listening to this broadcast. And, Lord, we just ask that uh, everyone we come across will hear you in our voices and see you in our actions. And we ask all this through Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Spirit, amen. John Martinoni, thank you so much for being with us here in the family room. I've enjoyed it, guys. I appreciate the invite. And listeners, be with us again here next week in the family room where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families. Thanks for hanging out with us in the family room. Sponsored by Versprite. For more info, go to thequestatlanta.com.